This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we're welcoming to Dreamland, A, one of our most frequent guests, and B, one of our most interesting guests, and C, this is his 10th anniversary edition of Dreamland. He has been on Dreamland, I think, 17 times in 10 years, something like that. His name, many of you will be familiar with, is Nick Redfern. He is very good at blowing people's socks off, and my socks are gone. I can't even find them. They've been blown off. How anti-gravity built the pyramids, and a little more. Nick is the author of more than 60 books, and that's saying just something. I've I've joked with Nick that he can write a book in the time it takes to sit down to read one, but they are wonderful books. The National and the NASA Conspiracies, Men in Black, uh, Bloodline of the Gods, Pyramids and the Pentagon. We've I think we've talked in about most all of his books. Uh, not all of them, not all forty, but a lot of them. Uh, Unexplained. He's been on Ancient Aliens, of course, Monster Quest, all kinds of different things. So. And he's a big coast guest as well. Nick, welcome to Dreamland. Hey, Whitley. Thanks for having me on again. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you on, folks. And we're going to do audio today for two reasons. Uh, Nick's internet is screwed up, and I have what could safely be described as an allergy attack that you uh, you won't hear any sneezing, but if we did, did it on... Uh, video, you would see it. So we're going to do audio this week. The Lost Secrets of the Ancients, How Anti-Gravity Built the Pyramid, starts in a really interesting and terribly cool and unexpected place. Why don't we begin by talking a little bit about an interview you did with a man named Ray Bosch. Is that how to pronounce his name? Oh, Boshay. Boucher, yeah, that, Ray Boucher. Boucher. It's yeah, conceivable Boucher. that I've had him on Dreamland, but if I haven't, I certainly will. Well, Ray is somebody who has been in the UFO field um, for 40-odd years, I think more than that even. Um, you know, I think like a lot of us, he got into this, you know, when we were um, young people. And um, over the years, he sort of looked into the UFO subject as well. And and as well as a ufologist, um, Ray is also a priest. Uh, that's his primarily um, role. And, um, and over the years, um, I had a few chats with Ray, and he told me um, this str- really strange story um, of how there was um, like a small organization or... Uh, sort of um, like a project, if you like, that was um, putting together um, a, a program, if you like, to try and summon up demons in, as a means to try and understand their power. Um, and you might say their technology. And and this, for me, was fascinating but bizarre. You know, the idea that the Department of Defense was um was u- using funding um to understand the natures of demonology and um and use the 
the technology, if you like, or the powers um, to take on our enemies. And um, I mean, this sounds like something straight out of, you know, the X-Files or Lovecraft or something like that. It's insane. Um, but the more, mm -hmm. but the more he told me about it, you know, there was more data and I started to sort of look it into it even further and, and just, I was sort of like, um, you know, like a, my jaw was just dropping. Um, but, but when he told me how, how it was working and, you know, they were getting this funding and, um, and there was this angle, if you like, of a connection between, um, ufology and demonology, um, which is a pretty sort of uh, strange connection, if you like. <laughs> well, there is a connection. Mm -hmm. There is a. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about the Collins Elite, and then we'll get into Operation mm -hmm. Often. Tell us about the well, Collins yeah. Elite. What are they? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, the the Collins Elite. Um, when Ray um, told me this story, he said to me. You know, well, why don't you sort of, you know, go into it and see if you can find um, any more information? Because Ray had a certain amount of data, um, but he'd, he'd gone about as far as he could. Um, and so he said to me, you know, well, here's some leads, and, um, you know, here's a place, here's a name, that kind of thing. And, um, and so I started to do that. And I got in touch with about seven or eight people who had previously been on this organization that they called the, the Collins Elite. And, um, and it really was sort of a nickname. Um, now, as far as I know, there is actually um, a highly classified um, title for the, for the organization, which isn't that big. It's about 25 to 30 people as far as I know or, or it was like that um, but for security reasons they used a nickname uh, particularly so when I was writing the book um, rather than give out the, um, the the top secret if you like um, title and so um, again I started to look into this and was I able to speak to a number of people who essentially told me the the same kind of story that that Ray had told me that there was deep in the um, Department of Defense there was this uh, group um, who were looking into some really strange things. Um, one of them told me and showed me this sort of huge collection of ancient books going back to sort of like the 1500s, 1600s to do, uh, do with like um, demonology. I don't know where any of these um, books came from, but, um, you know, they were sort of sort of things you'd seen like an old horror movie, you know, covered in dust almost <laughs> like that. It wasn't quite like that, but, you know, you get the picture. And, um, and this organization were perceiving... Uh, and maybe connect, uh, correctly, they perceived that or thought that the the greys, if you like, of ufology were sort of something that themselves were 
demon, uh, demonic, um, which is, you know, a very strange and um, sensational um, thing that they were they were coming to. But that was their, their sort of thoughts. They felt that we, that the UFO subject is sort of really like a, a cover for, um, you know, to, to hide the UFO angle, uh, excuse me, to hide the demonology side by making it look like that um, this is extraterrestrial. And, now, um, just hold on a second, because there's something <clears throat> deeper there, I think. First of all, folks, we have not interviewed... Uh, uh, Nick on his book, Final Events. We have to do that. We had, it's on the secret government group on demonic UFOs and the afterlife. It's a very important book and we will do this. But getting back to the grays just briefly, I have a slightly different idea and I just want to throw it out there. I think that what we look at when we see the grays is a species or something that maybe once was a species, a physical species, that did essentially the same thing the U.S., the insiders in the U.S. government in the Defense Department are trying to do now. They came into contact with a deeply evil force in search of technology. And what we see now in the grays is what happens when you do that. The grays are the future if we are not very careful. Yeah, and I, I would uh, sort of like to, to tell the uh, the listeners, you know, that the this scenario of the Collins elite, um, you know, I'm not someone who is sort of, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of full on with them. I'm not. For me... The reason why I wrote this book and um, and also the story within the anti-gravity book was simply because um, it was a fascinating story, you know, that the U.S. government being funded to to understand what demons are, you know, that the, yeah, which whether you yeah whether you guy whether you go for the story or not, it's a it's a fascinating story, <laughs> you know. It's uh, so I wasn't going to sort of. Um, you know, leave that one alone. That's that's really fascinating, and it also ties in with what you briefly mentioned, um, Operation Often. Now, Operation Often was kind of like um, the Collins Elite, but with one difference. Um, Operation um, Often was all about um, tr the the started in the 1960s when the government um, started to work on all different sides of um, the paranormal, if you like, um, voodoo, um, demonology, um, all sorts of things, uh, apart from the UFO subject. And the, the Collins elite handled the UFO side of it, um, but everything else was pretty much done by Operation Often, and um, and there was a great deal of activity and and resurrecting um, you know souls and things like this, or trying to you know and trying um, trying to. Uh, this is the one thing that's really strange is that they tried to um, bring forward, if you like, the souls of CIA 
agents and um and the 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 entire um aspect of it was supposedly that um you know could they resurrect the agents who've been working say twenty years earlier and to have them tell all the secrets that they knew, which is you know even more bizarre <laughs> that is but, really um, really bizarre mm-hmm. but you know they yes, come, they don't that, understand this. You understand it better than any of them, and I do too. I'll tell you this about this, though. There's two things. One is, to a fly, flypaper looks inviting, and it doesn't look dangerous. That should be remembered at all times by people working in this area. And number two, there are entities that can't tell the truth. They can't. They always lie. And like, for example, uh, Nathan Twining told his son that one of the Roswell entities that survived the crash said they weren't interested in human beings. A lie. But he couldn't tell the truth. That wasn't possible for him because of how far he's gone. Okay. Uh, well, listen, Free Dreamlanders, why are we going to take a little break right now? We're going to take a break with Nick Redfern. Nick Redfern's book, his new book, is How Anti-Gravity Builds the Pyramids. But I suggest that you go to your, your favorite, maybe website, maybe Amazon or Barnes & Noble or somewhere like that, and just don't look for a specific book. Hit Nick, search on Nick Redfern, and it, you know, it's a cornucopia of fabulous stuff. I'm not going to say Nick doesn't sound like a genius, but he he writes like one, and it's so cool, all of it. How Andy Gravity Built the Pyramids is also way, way, way cool, and we're going to get into things like the mysterious platform at Baalbek and all kinds of stuff. Nick Redfernfortian.blogspot.com is his website. We will be right back. This is Whitley Strieber. It's Dreamland. We're talking to Nick Redfern, how gravity built the pyramids. We were still on the college, Collins elite and operation often and attempts to contact the souls of dead FBI and CIA agents, something I've heard about uh, too. I, I'm pretty sure that happened and happens. And to get to try to gain knowledge from them. And I know there is technology being developed by the other side because there are good guys over there, too. I've got some of the good guys' technology in my left ear in the form of an implant. But my listeners know that story. We're not going to go into that now. Uh, now, you can read about it in a new world or listen to it if you listen, prefer to listen to books. Uh, let's, let's stay with Operation Often and attempts to go back into the past and figure out what technologies we have lost, essentially? Well, I mean, you know, there was a lot was done initially um, when Operation Often began and went on for several years. And um, and some of the operations um, seem to have worked and others seem to be over the head of the people in the organization. They... You know, they weren't really sure what they were doing. Um, and they were hiring, um, you know, people in the 
um, the fields of the occult and, and hiring witches and people like that. And um, one of, uh, if you know the name of Sybil, Le- uh, uh, Sybil Leake, um, well, Sybil Leake, uh, particularly in the 1970s, was a very famous um, witch. And, and she was brought into operation often. And, um, and it's a sort of a very bizarre situation. You know, you go to work and, um, you work in sort of side to side with witches, uh, because of U.S. national security. Um, you know, it's one of those things that, well, it just could not be true, but it's one of those things that, that really is true, you know. Um, but yeah, they, they went into just about every aspect of the paranormal. And of course, what happened was what happens to a lot of people. You get a backlash and things start to go wrong and people fall sick and things like that. And um, and then after a while, the often people um, realized that, you know, they weren't really um, able to, you know, sort of... Um, be above them in any way at all you know it was a case that um you know the the human race was sort of um when it came to um operation often you know these entities they were trying to um contact um we were completely out of the picture you know we were just we just weren't you know up to this and particularly as i said when you know this issue of backlash um so many people who've dabbled um, rather than looked at all this um, correctly. Um, but, you know, you start messing around and thinking it's all cool and fun. Um, you know, that can be the worst thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, and, and so many people will tell you um, when they've done this, they've looked into these things, as did the operation, often people, and it does sort of like a, a blowback to you, you know, and then people fall ill, you know, and um, they see shadowy things out of the corner of their eyes and things like this, and um, and it really gets um, sinister, you know. Yeah. Well, there are those of us who see shadowy things not out of the corners of our eyes, but in our faces. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I hear you, and I, I'm telling you, these were spiritually spiritual children playing with fire that they did not know burned. That is really the bottom line about all of this. And they have gotten plenty of us into deep trouble because they have tried to take this whole country and ultimately the whole species down a path from which there is no return having not the faintest idea what they were actually doing because this aspect, the dark side of this, is real dangerous. It is entirely real. And like you have implied, it's corrosive. It's like a disease. When, you, when, when they in, interact with it, they can never get away again. And what they don't know, and because we're soul blind, most of us, not all of us, is that once they have touched this, after they die, they will still be its servant. 
It will never get away. That's the truth. So when you talk to some of these guys in the Defense Department who have been doing this, if you know what to look for, you can see that they know what has happened to them. It's very scary stuff. Very scary. All right. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, I mean, if you look around at, um, you know, all this issue of the paranormal, um, nobody should be dabbling in it. You know, if you're going to get into it, do it in, um, you know, a down-to-earth um, way and and actually know what you're doing. And and that sort of um, is something that the Collins elite did not do properly. They kind of went into, I think, almost in kind of like in a gung-ho kind way. And, and it certainly did not... Uh, work for some of them. For example, Ray um, told me that he was shown by his DOD friends or colleagues, I should say, um, but um, Ray Beauchet was told and shown these uh, photographs of several people um, who died in the programs. And it was really weird because the three people had had like, um, like a dent in the side of their head. Uh, as if like something had just pushed it in, something invisible. And um, I didn't see the pictures, but Ray did see the pictures. And he, he descri- that's how he described it, you know, as if somebody just got a hammer and slammed it into somebody's head. And um, and they closed the, that particular aspect down uh, because they couldn't understand or even control it. I'm looking at his website and I'm seeing... Ray Boucher, which is RayBoucher.com, and I'm seeing an absolutely fascinating man here. I've got to interview him. Oh, he is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Forty in research, uh, all kinds of things. So you, of course, you knew well, about him, and you went, you went to the, went to the, to the, to the well, obviously. And we've all benefited from it. Um, yeah, actually, one of the things that I'll tell you that he's um, investigated um, you know, to a, a really extensive degree is the whole men in black um, phenomenon, you know, which and Ray's cons- um, sort of thinks that, you know, this is tied in as well. It's not um, secret agents or government agents or anything like that. He thinks that um, the MIB are are some sort of um, sort of paranormal, dangerous type um, entity. You know, uh, I believe you wrote a book about the man in black and we interviewed you. Yes, I did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it's it's a good book uh, and it's a wonderful interview too. So folks, if you're subscriber do listen to it you should you know what you do is you you go into google and you just uh or on the search engine on the website either one and put in dreamland nick redfern and there's an absolute cornucopia of fabulous shows and loads of really fun books uh you know they're not fun in in the fun fun sense they're fun in the sense that they really make you think Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thanks, Whitley. And um, I think um, if people might like to know that of all my research uh, with the men in black phenomenon, because I've done two books on the sub- that subject now, um, for me, there's, you know, there's the government agents um, that's look at, that are looking into the UFO subject. 
and then also you've got the the weirder men in black where they're sort of these pale gaunt bulging eyes creatures if you like with these um uh, the old style fedora hats and and sometimes yeah. their face looks their face almost looks like it's got makeup on because they do all this because they don't actually look completely human. And some people have said that when the MIB have been in the person's home, kind of like we just said, um, that the people who were targeted, they started to fall ill as well. And, um, you know, it was just a, a situation of spiraling and they had to sort of like cleanse the house um, because... There was nothing else to do, really. You know, an entity from the dark side touched the mm -hmm. temple of a child at our yeah. cabin once. And you talked about those dents in the head. And he, it just touched, touched her briefly. And a, an infection appeared that could not be cured. It didn't spread, but it could not be, could, there was nothing that could, the doctors couldn't find anything to, cure it and it, it it went away after about two years this little infection on the side of her head and boy i regretted that 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 the children had been near anything like that but it, you know it did happen i mean the cabin was a very complicated place it had you know there's a lot of good going on at the cabin a lot of good but that's not all that's there ever you can't you can't push the bad side away because if you do that it gets it only gets strong and it comes back at you from another direction. You have to approach it, but never any in any way except from within your own light. Within your own light. Nick Redfern's website is nickredfern14.blogspot.com. And it's almost as much fun to go on Amazon and just put in Nick Redfern what a wealth of fascinating material. And, uh, and we're talking about how anti-gravity built the pyramids. And I promise you, this has been so fascinating talking about the dark side and the defense department. I, I swear I'm going to be a good boy and we will go on to the pyramids and all of that stuff in the past as soon as we get back. We're talking to Nick Redfern, How Anti-Gravity Built the Pyramids. Wow, what a story you have been telling us about the struggles of people in modern times to deal with the dark side. But let's, let's go back into the deep past. Where do we start? Well, you know where I want to start? It, this is sort of related <laughs> because it's in your press release, uh, the Mayan story of the construction of the pyramids of the magician, pyramid of the magician, said to have been overseen by a small humanoid who could whistle large stones into place. Do you tell us about that small humanoid? Because we're dealing, when we deal with the dark side in this level, we're often dealing with small humanoid figures. So tell us about that story. Well, tell us that story. Well, yeah, this is actually um, a Mayan story, 
and um, of the construction of what's known as the pyramid, pyramid of the magician. And it was said to be an overseen, uh, overseen by, a, uh, by a small humanoid which could um, whistle large stones into place. And, and so it's intriguing that this entity or this creature um, that could uh, raise these huge um, stones, uh, multi-toned ones, um, it sh that it should be not a really a normal human, this sort of small um, dwarfish entity. Now, what's intriguing um, is that um, when we talk about um, uh, raising stones by whistling, I mean, if, if you think about that literally, people would say you cannot raise um, stones just by whistling. Or we'd be all be doing it all day, you know. <laughs> um, but what uh, we're talking about, um, a, a whistle, if you like, is sound. And what I think has happened, and I think this is absolutely correct, what I think is that over the centuries, um, people have learned how to do this by using not so much just whistling, but what's called acoustics. And, um, and there are various different um, types of acoustics, but they, it all comes down to the fact that... Um, it's sound. And if you can uh, manipulate sound, you can do a lot of things. I mean, for example, um, totally different, but um, over the last few years, um, various uh, military agencies around the world have been um, sort of expanding um, what we would call like acoustic weapons, you know, to uh, fry people's brains and, um, yeah, a lot of things like that. Havana syndrome is what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, um, there's been some really dangerous things, you know, um, have happened in the last few years where people have had, you know, really um, bad situations um, as a result of sound. And um, right. there's a lot of research now in this arena. And we also know that... Um, literally thousands of years ago, particularly at Stonehenge, that there's evidence that, um, that the ancients may have been able to use sonics, if you like, um, in their, um, their, their sort of uh, religious um, events and as a means to um, enhance um, uh, connections, if you like, with supernatural entities so uh, even with Stonehenge way back then there's this um, angle of acoustics and I think ancient man had fought, knew far much about acoustics than we do and uh, and part of it was the issue of, of levitation yeah you know the this question of of the use of acoustics and and other means to cause levitation yeah. interests me very much. You know, I had Paul Eno on the show a couple of months ago. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know Paul, and, and listeners do Yeah, too. I know he, Paul, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, he talks about a time when he was a, a novitiate. I, I don't know what they call him. And he was a young 
guy studying to be a priest, Catholic priest, and his job was to be the assistant of an exorcist. And, you know, and they threw him out later because he got interested in the too interested in the paranormal. I mean, what do they expect? You know, they give him a job what? like that. He's going to get interested in the paranormal. Anyway, that's just not, neither here nor there. He, at one point, in a room full of witnesses, saw a woman who they believed to be possessed rise up out of a wheelchair. And the exorcist simply said, go push her back down. So this is real. Wow. And there's Joseph of Cupertino in the 17th century, whose story is attested to by hundreds of people. I mean, he, he levitated. He levitated. It is real. And yeah, there's another thing. Uh, there's a book by a man named Maladoma Patrice Somme called Water in the Spirit. Uh, Somme was, he's passed on recently, was one of the great shamans in modern African history. Uh, in fact, for subscribers, there's a, a little piece I did about him in the uh, special interview section. I, I did about him, not with him, because unfortunately he died right before I discovered him. But he he talks about seeing gravity defied at his grandfather's funeral, where things came up off the floor and all kinds of stuff happened. And they can't do it anymore, but at, at that time, there were still people alive who knew these secrets. What do you think it is? Yeah, you, yeah. How does it work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of stories from around the world, you know, with, with levitation. Um, for example, in the UK, in the Middle Ages, uh, with witchcraft, you know, it was known that uh, witches could sort of levitate as well. And... Um, and so, you know, you've got this sort of like a cross, if you like, of science, religion, and, um, you know, uh, sort of splicing them together, if you like. You know, one of the things that we do that's such a profound mistake, I always think, is that we try to make the past look like what we understand the world to be mm. now. Why don't we start talking about the Sphinx and tell us a little bit about what's actually going on there. There's a wonderful chapter in this book called The Sphinx. Not at all mm -hmm. what it seems to be. Well, let's not at all. That's right. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody pretty much, you know, has seen pictures, um, the Sphinx, and, uh, you know, if they've been um, able to, you know, actually gone there. Um now, what's intriguing is not so much um, the size of the Sphinx, but the age of it. Um, and um, what we know now is the uh, this angle, uh, like for, for example, Robert Schock, um, who has um, presented a really, really good um, situation where it. It, he's demonstrated, if you like, um, that at some point, a long, long time ago, that the Sphinx um, had been sort of weathered by massive amounts of, of rain and water. Now, if you think about Egypt, you know, covered in water, it's just, you know, they just don't go together, <laughs> you know. Um, 
But at some point, um, we know um, from the wearing on the um, on the sink itself, we know that at, that at some point there must have been a lot of rain. Now, if that's the case, then that actually throws back the age of the Sphinx far beyond what we think about now, you know, just a few thousand years. Um, other researchers who've also followed this angle of using uh, water wearing to understand, um, you know, how long ago the Sphinx might have actually been built and some researchers have suggested sort of like 10 or uh, 12,000 years BC. Now if that is true and there's no reason to to deny it um, I think that would push the human civilization um, you know way back in time and and history would be sort of thrown off its head you know. Uh, what was going on in Egypt that there would be so much rainfall? Because we do know the rainfall happened. And as far as the age mm -hmm. of the Sphinx is concerned, conventional Egyptologists have their own ideas. And they were, their main argument against Robert Schock was it was a, it was a total, it would have been 12,000 years ago, totally alone in the world. We've never found anything else, any other, mm -hmm. A, a, any other sophisticated constructions? Then we found Go Get, Gobekli Tepe, where you have go, you've been to Gobekli Tepe, as I recall, or have you? Mm -hmm. No, maybe not. Oh well, no, I haven't. No. Yeah. Okay. No, well, no, and in no, any no. case, which is that age, meaning that there was a lot going on back there. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, uh, so what was it? A was there a flood? What what caused this? All this rainfall. Do you know? Well, well, the, the, what the crux of it um, really is that um, because we know that there wasn't the massive amounts of rain um, that would need would be needed to um, to weather the um, the Sphinx so much, we could only um, be able to see all this wearing. Um, if um, we're talking about the massive amount of rain um, around about 10, 12,000 years ago, that means we're pushing back, you know, the, uh, the mindset, if you like, of the people of that, that era. You know, they were far, far more um, advanced than a lot of people think. Um, so that sort of brings up, well, you know, did it end at 12,000 BC? Could it have gone back 15,000 BC? Who knows? But what it, but, but the wet, the, the water wearing on the Sphinx does demonstrate that the Sphinx is older than most mainstream, um, figures in that, in the, that, uh, arena, if you like, um, would say so. So it was a, it was a time of, obviously a time of upheaval and a very strange time. And when I say strange, I mean the people who built Gobekli Tepe built all of those incredible sculptures and structures and then spent mm -hmm. apparently about a thousand years burying them. We're sort of going, I'm sort of diverting. So if you don't have any thoughts about it, we'll just go on down another road. But 
Fascinating. Go ahead. No, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things is that when you look at all these these massive structures, like the 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 pyramids in Egypt, the key ones, um, and if you look at um, like the the Baalbek stones and things like this, the one thing that makes us different to to people now is that. They seem to have been able to move massive things um, in a way that we cannot do it even now. And, and it should be the other way around. You know, the, the more and more a civilization develops, it should get more advanced. But it, it's the other way around. You know, we're the ones scratching our heads as to how all these stones were moved. And, and we don't know it how to do it but somebody did thousands of years before and that's that's one of the sort of more most intriguing things you know as to how something like that could actually be achieved now getting back to the mayan story could it mm-hmm. be that there was somebody else here with us at that time you've been on ancient aliens and somebody else who could do this and we've they left and let and took the secret with them or from most of us, obviously, they they did mm-hmm. not take the secret from the uh, that tribe in Africa, the the what are they, the, mm-hmm. the Gara tribe. But mm-hmm. from most of us, well, that's an interest interesting uh, angle, Whitley. I'll tell you for why, because um, one of the themes that goes throughout this story uh, by looking at the old texts and the stories and so on, um, one of the things that you find is that it seems that at various times there somebody, whether it's extraterrestrials or highly advanced humans, but at some point, um, it's, it's as if at some point um, that, you know, we've, we've, we're in a situation where we've got um, these massive stones and then the technology, if you like, or the building stops. It's almost as if um, somebody has hidden the way to do this or destroyed it uh, for whatever reason we don't know. But somebody at some point um, essentially put us all in a situation where we'd lost it. That technology um, was lost. And it's only really now that um, acoustic technology that is coming back now and realizing how we could do possibly what they could do also, but way back. Um, but this, but this angle of somebody wiping out the the science, the technology, because they don't want the next generations to know, and that's what it seems to be. Um, it makes me wonder. Well, why? Why did some race of super people or whatever? Why would they want to? prevents forthcoming civilizations um, stopping the present um, civilizations for, for having that technology? Well, you know, that's a fascinating question and mm-hmm. an important one. And it gets back to this whole idea of demons or what Linda Moulton Howe talks about, which is essentially a war over us. Mm-hmm. Could there be anything in any of that? I mean, maybe somebody lost and they 
they they got defeated and mm-hmm. we were left with the bad guys. Could that have happened? Mm-hmm. And they don't want well, to tell, they of, want to give us any secrets, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's a good point. And I think it kind of parallels some of the stuff Bob Lazar said about people's souls and containers and things like that, you know, and um, which gets a bit kind of creepy, you know, manipulating people's souls and things like that. Yeah, but it, it's real. It's real creepy. Oh, but I know. It's totally know you've, real. Yeah. And, yeah you know, we've been a lot of that. Something was done to us, I think, that caused us to become soul blind. Mm-hmm. And, we, and so we can't. I remember, actually. Yeah, I remember, actually, when um, Communion came out and I read that. And, um, and you know, one of these greys, one of the entities said that. Um, you know, we recycle souls. I remember that put the hair on my arms, you know, when I heard that. So, you well, know, it's almost do. like, I'll tell you what it rem- makes me think of, um, like the Matrix. You know, it's um, it's sort of, um, you know, we, we're not really sure of the reality of the life we live in, you know. Some of the ones that came to the cabin used to call themselves soul techs. And speaking of technology... Free Dreamlanders, folks, uh, use your technology to go over to unknowncountry.com and drop a subscription on us. We could use it. <clears throat> we really could. As I say every week and have been saying every week for what feels like about 300 years, but it's not been quite that long. Uh, okay. So we'll be right back. We're talking to Nick Redfern. His latest is how anti-gravity built the pyramids. Nick Redfern, fortian.blogspot.com is his internet home. We'll be right back. We're talking to Nick Redfern. How Anti-Gravity Built the Pyramids, and many, many others. Now, talk about, let's talk about the, the, what was going on at Giza. Can you tell, I mean, because there's all kinds of stories about the pyramid, the pyramids and the, and the building of the pyramids, and they're explained away about every five years. Someone else, someone else comes up with a new idea that, that will satisfy the unwary. Yeah. But where, what's the well, truth yeah. here? Well, I'm not sure, you know, we'll, we'll ever get fully 100% all the answers, but I, I'm sure, um, you know, we are going in the right direction right now. Now, if you look at the, um, you know, the, the Giza uh, pyramids and you look at those stones, I mean, those stones themselves are multi-tonned. You know, they're the stones themselves, you know, never mind just the, the, the weight of the pyramid itself, you know, the stones themselves are multi-tonned. Now, if you, you know, you look at a picture of a photograph of somebody standing at the bottom of, you know, either of those, any of the, the Giza pyramids, um, you'll, you'll, the first thing, that would sort of come into your mind is that how on earth could that multi-ton stone be right at the top of that pointed pyramid? And the fact is nobody really has got an answer um, uh, or rather um, the, a lot of the world of the uh, world of science just won't address it. And, and this is where, 
um, how we kind of look into this issue of what is known as acoustic levitation. Now, a friend of mine, uh, Marie Jones, um, she put together a really sort of easy and understandable um, way this works. And I'll just read it to you. And this is how Marie um, describes it. It, it is two opposing sound frequencies with interfering sound waves, thus creating a resonant zone that allows the levitation to occur. So, in other words, basically, you know, if you've ever picked up a magnet and another one and you push them against each other, they, get, they push each other away. And it's kind of like that. And you can... But with acoustic levitation, you, what we can do now is to raise little objects, and they are little objects so far, like the size of um, like a coin. Um, and by using opposing um, acoustic um, angles, you can raise something into the sky. And so we're talking about acoustics. And, and what do we have you know, with the little dwarf, we had a um, whistling. And, and again, like I said, I think these were just sort of legends pushed down through the centuries, we, and they got distorted. But the, the primary theme of acoustics has always been there. And, um, and, and what Marie said um, is a perfect example of how we can uh, now raise very, very small um, pieces of anything um, and, the and using directed acoustic waves. And, and it can be done. Um, but what we cannot do is, is, ri is rise like um, a four-ton block of rock. <laughs> you know, we're, not, we're nowhere near that. But the intriguing thing is that somebody once was there. Was there was there yeah well i mean they may be around still yeah <laughs> yes yeah. not not necessarily a was <laughs> right well we get back to the question of you know there's some obviously somebody is here right now there's no question about that and mm -hmm. which is weird but true i mean i live with them I'll, thousands of people live with them in various ways and mm -hmm. some of them are not nice some of them are wonderful in fact I separate the non-human from the human in the world of the disembodied. And the human part of it is great. I mean, that's where I'm in contact with my wife, for goodness sakes, which is just the most beautiful thing you could imagine. And yet there are other entities. Uh, you mentioned those, uh, I believe, the um, during we, when we were talking about the Defense Department, you mentioned those sort of white entities. We've had that in our lives since before mm -hmm. communion, Anne and I have, and they're not pleasant at all. They're dangerous. I think they are demons, mm -hmm. frankly. I think there is a demonic presence. I don't think they're necessarily physical, but they are corrosive, be the best way to describe it. Uh, let's. I want to concentrate for a few minutes, and then we're going to go Oh, goodness, we're going to go to Tibet. We're going to go to all kinds of places. But I want to concentrate for a few minutes, excuse me, on the platform at Baalbek because it is 
so huge. It, it even what we've been talking about with acoustic levitation and stuff, it's hard to believe that it could be like that. That it could have been moved anyway at all. Let's start. What do they yeah. say? What are the, yeah. they, what are the modern archaeologists say moved it? What do they say yeah. was done? Well, I'll tell you what they don't say. They don't say it's at, um, acoustic levitation. You know, no. I mean, people, I mean, I mean, a lot of people, unfortunately, have just, they just go down the, the simplistic angle. You know, oh, it's um, rollers and uh, rope and things. Well, that, that doesn't mean anything, you know. And it's, it's just a case of sort of washing it away. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example, uh, Whitley. Um, in Baalbek, in the Becker Valley in the Middle East, um, there are, and there's actually there's four um, massive, gigantic stones. Um, now, all four of them um, weigh more than 1,000 tons. Now, the one that's the heaviest has got um, one of these blocks is 1,650 tons. And, and it's been moved across sand or it was raised, you know, just into the air. It wouldn't necessarily have to go, you know, a, a mile in the sky. I mean, to move it, you could perhaps even just lift it two feet and push it like a little, a little boat on the water, you know. But if you think about that, 1,650 tons, and that's just one block. And if you have a look... Um, at uh, pictures of the um, the stones of Baalbek, um, there's plenty of pictures online, um, and on some of the pictures you'll see, you know, people standing next time and uh, next to them, and so you know when you when you've got these gigantic stones and next to it it looks like a little ant and you realise it's a person, you know, um, and then. You, you realize, how on earth did we move a 1,650-ton stone across the landscape? And nobody has an answer. No, there just they, is they, not they, an answer. They don't. No conventional no, answer is possible. apart from something like this. Yeah. Apart from acoustic levitation, really. Or some other form of levitation. I mean, it could be something else. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good point, because I do say in the book as well, you know, that there may be other types of levitation, but I think it's, it still comes down um, as levitation. So. You know, in the part of the book where you talk about Morris Jessup, and you can tell mm -hmm. us in a second exactly who he is, uh, but you make a, he makes a point that it all ended so suddenly can you tell us about who he was and why he would say that this ability to move stones like this seems to have ended very suddenly? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, Morris Jessup was a fascinating guy. He was a scientist, um, um, someone who was fascinated by levitation. And we're talking now back in the 1950s, early 1950s, and... Um, and he also had a, a fascination um, for 
ancient civilizations and and the mysteries of ancient civilizations as well. And um, and he came to believe also that there was no way that these gigantic stones could be moved under normal human ways. And bear in mind, this was the early 1950s. Well, that's sort of um, the, in the period from late 40s onward, um, you know, where we had the beginning of the UFO um, phenomenon starting. And Jessup came to believe that the, the 1940s, 1950s era um, UFO presence was connected to the ancient mysteries um, that we've been talking about today, you know, these gigantic blocks of stone. And so he traveled around very much of um, um, South America, um, Central America, and going, you know, here, there, and everywhere, trying to find out, you know, some of the the most uh, biggest stones and um, how did they get them you know, placed here or placed there, you know, 50 feet up, that kind of thing. And the more and more that Jessup began to look into all of this, the more that he realized that our history was not what it appeared to be. And, you know, um, on that note, and that, Nick, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I have no right. choice. We've come to the end of the first segment of the show for our free segment, and I have to cut it off here. Folks, we're going down a fascinating trail, uh, so subscribers do stay with us because the Morris Jessup, Jessup story gets, well, you'll see, it gets very, very deep and very, very weird. Free listeners, thank you as always for being with us on Dreamland. We've been talking to Nick Redfern, his book, How Anti-Gravity built the pyramids and you can reach him on Nick Redfern Let's continue talking about Jessup because I think this is a, mm-hmm. an important story. Uh, t- t- tell us a little bit about, about what he began to delve into and what began to happen to him. Well, yeah, I mean, this was a very strange and almost sort of sinister part of the story. Um, Jessup, um, as I said, you know, he he was putting together the UFO subject um, with the the issue of ancient civilizations and also having, uh, developing a deep interest again in these gigantic stones that we simply cannot move, but for some reason somebody else could. Um, and so he was a fascinating man. He was doing a lot of different things and putting them all together as, as he saw it. Um, but also, um, it wasn't long after he, um, started to doing this research into anti-gravity that the U S Navy, um, uh, went to see him. Basically they said, we wanted to talk to you. And, um, and to start with, Jessup was a little bit concerned, you know, people from naval intelligence coming to, to meet him. Um, but it turns out it was, it was a fairly sort of laid back meeting, but they wanted to know um, what he thought about this issue 
of um, anti-gravity and things like that. And if you look in the history, you'll see there was a lot of um, stories and cases of um, scientists in that era, um, you know, looking into the issue of anti-gravity. And, um, but also, um, they wanted to speak to him about what he knew about the so-called Philadelphia experiment. Uh, I'm sure most of you your listeners have heard about that of this um, a warship supposedly in the ni- in 1943 um, became invisible um, like a stealth type ship and it all went wrong and um, killed the crew it's a famous story you know and turned into movies and um, books and so on um, so Jessup was in a lot of things you know, uh, and the government was listening, the military, military was listening, he was looking into anti-gravity, looking into civilizations that were, you know, that, that, fl- that sort of um, went out of, um, out of the plant, uh, you know, sort of thousands of years ago. And, and he, was, he was really sort of deep and, and digging into everything. But unfortunately, it all came to an end in 1959. And that was when, um, when um, Jessup himself was found dead. And um, it was in Florida's um, Dale County Park in um, April 1959. And, um, and Jessup was found dead in his car with the engine running and, and with a pipe um, you know, sort of like a classic um, way of taking your life, you know, sadly and unfortunately. Now, what we do know is that um, that Jessup spoke with a friend um, the night before, uh, a guy named Manson Valentine, who was also fascinated by these ancient huge stones. And, um, and although the police said... It was just suicide. Um, there were some kind of weird things um, that made it look like it was it had been staged, if you like, uh, and that may well have been the case um, because um, what had happened was that most people had left um, the the park um, by the time um, that he got there, so he was. He, he carefully had, had waited until there was just him and maybe a couple of the people who worked there. And, and that's actually how he was found. It was one of the, uh, the people who worked at the park was just sort of, you know, getting to, ready to close down for the night, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then he saw the, the car engine was, just, was still running and ran over, but it was too late. Uh, but Manson uh, Valentine uh, was adamant that um, that that um, Jessup was not in sort of a state of depression or anything like that. And um, and as I said, there were some anomalies as well that made it suspicious. Um, and that was the end of it. But I mean the. One of the important things is is that uh, a lot of people still write about um, Jessup. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm doing that in that in my new book, 
you know so it's um you know it's a good thing that um his his work is still standing high you know there's a lot of cases of mysterious deaths in this whole field too many uh, Danny Calasaro uh, uh, is uh, another one. There are many of them. People get killed, and they get killed in ways that make it look like they did it themselves, which sort of mm-hmm. both discredits them and uh, gets them out of the way. Why? Why is it that they're killed? There's even, you know, Stanton Friedman even makes a, a very powerful case that Kennedy was killed because of this. That basically Mm. because he and his brother were spilling the beans and Kennedy was just about to tell the public. There's a memo that Friedman points to in one of his books that Kennedy sent a week before he was assassinated, basically saying to the Defense Department, we're going to open this door. And Ah. instead he he was assassinated. Now, you've alluded to the fact that there's a level of this that isn't the government, that may work through it, that may use it, manipulate it. So I'm not well, blaming yeah, the think- Defense Department. I'm saying that something, d- d- try to illuminate us. Well, yeah, I mean, um, if you look into the UFO subject, you actually can find um, various. Um, connections um, to the Kennedys and Dallas, you know, when he was killed, uh, when JFK, JFK was killed in uh, November 1963 in Daly Plaza. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we know that um, that Kennedy, had he not been killed, um, he was was going to push on with the space uh, with the with the space projects and so on, uh, which would have been you know something that would probably would have pushed um, you know our ability to go further out to, into into space uh, rather than where we are now with just you know with hardly ever somebody taken into space now you know so um, so we know that side of it but there's a lot of people who were attached if you like to the um, UFO subject and who were also tied to the um, to the whole issue of JFK and um, and, and it is an intriguing um, story um, for example uh, one person who was tied in both areas um, was the famous journalist Dorothy Kilgallen and um, she died under very uh, bizarre circumstances late one night dead in her bed um, just when she was going to blow the the whistle on who she thought was um, tied to JFK and who was the assassination uh, who was doing this um, but what's intriguing was that Kilgallen also um, had a deep interest in UFOs and over the years, she collected a huge amount of data on UFOs. And um, so that, that's just one example of, um, you know, the, the, the JFK angle, because the, the most intriguing thing about the uh, Kilgallen aspect is that um, 
the reason why, uh, or the timing of her death, if you like, um, was essentially somebody went to see her, found her, she was dead, her files were gone, UFO files gone, and it wasn't long after that that um, Kilgallen said that um, she was going to look even deeper into the JFK assassination. And, of course, what happened? Well, she was found dead. So, um, like you said, with JFK as well, I mean, we could go over and over. Um, so, you know, one of these situations where you wouldn't really believe that, you know, um, a, a president could be killed um, because of UFOs. But, bizarrely, that's exactly what it sounds like. Exactly. You know, I think people are beginning to realize this is not a small thing. It's not a giggle factor, mm. and it's not off mm -hmm. to one side. It's the central secret of our times, and boy, is that ever dangerous. It's malignant. You know, uh, during the Trump administration, it became possible to release all of the Kennedy assassination records that are still held at the Library of Congress. And he released some, but de declined to release the ones we're all waiting to see. And then comes Biden, and the same thing. He doesn't release them either. He passes. They both kick the can down the road. What in the world could be there? I mean, it, 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 I think it's this. I think it's this. And I, I think that there will – I don't think there is ever – going to be a president who doesn't kick that can down the road, boy. Unless it is that mm. Alan Dulles did it, which is also possible, I think. Because mm. uh, he was basically running the CIA from his from his from the yeah. from his back porch at the time because Kennedy was trying to push him out. And boy, he was an intense guy, very intense. But anyway, we're getting a little bit off the subject. Let's talk about Bruce Cathy. You know, I interviewed him years and years ago before Dreamland, unfortunately, was mm -hmm. on my website. Fascinating man. You tell us a little bit about him and about the ruins that, and what he thought. It's, all, it's a great chapter in the mm. book. Okay, yep. Well, um, Bruce Cathy uh, was a citizen, excuse me, of New Zealand, and he was a pilot. And, um, and a highly driven UFO sleuth. And um, he blended the two together. And, um, and he came to believing, or not believing, but concluding based on his research, that all around the world, there was something what you might call like um, something akin to like the New York um, subway trains, you know, traveling all around New York. He kind of made that analogy um, that in ancient times that there was some sort of like a grid that we could plug into and zoom around in ancient craft um, thousands of years ago, which which is a fascinating scenario. And um, so, you know, you've got this issue, if you like, or this angle of having some sort of... Um, 
like a like a magnetic um, line, if you like, and another one here, another one there, and it really would be, you know, like I said, the that analogy of the uh, like the New York um, subway, um, and now what was intriguing was that part of Kathy's research took him back into the past as well. And he started looking into this issue of anti-gravity and acoustic, acoustic levitation. And, um, and it grew and grew and grew. And um, he spent a lot of time um, um, approaching government agencies. And, um, and I was able to use the Freedom of Information Act to get a number of files where it showed that um, that Kathy realised that um, somebody was watching him, following him, and that's actually in the documents. And um, but it wasn't just that. Um, he said that he was his home was being bugged and all sorts of weird things. And I mean that's sort of really strange, you know. He's he gets into this situation. He's starting the UFO subject. Then he starts talking about finding these fantastic ways of, of traveling around the, the planet. And then he's got government agents following him. And, and again, this demonstrates that when somebody gets a little bit too close and they found out, you know, perhaps a few secrets, that kind of thing, then suddenly somebody dies, you know. But he didn't. <laughs> no. Bruce did not, <laughs> or at least not then. But uh, but he was. Um, there's no doubt that he was. Um, you know, someone who was a pioneer um, in that um, arena. Partly because you know he was a very skilled pilot. Yeah, well, he was, and he was a fascinating man to talk to. I wish I I could say that the show was still on on the site, but it's not. It's too long ago. I was back in the late nineties, I think. Uh, anyway, the let's talk about acoustic levitation as it stands today, because there's been a lot of research on this. It's not it's not completely sort of out out out, out in in in, in woo woo land at all. No, you're you're right. Um, what we've got so far is a, a very much scaled down version um and we're not doing that just out of because they wanted to do it small no it, it's because we cannot really do it yet but uh, like i said with marie jones um she sort of provided the the best um angle you know you've got these you've got the um the acoustic um magnets and if you put one carefully in another place you will be able to rise something very slowly and extremely small. Um, we are, I have to admit, we are not really very far ahead. Um, but we are going in the right direction. Um, but we just cannot find the way to rise something sort of two tons or half a ton even. Um, all we can rise is something about that barely sits on your hand but but the the actual kind of scenario we started to do it um and of course now we're starting to do it 
maybe that would give us some guidance and um, an understanding um, if we start to look back into the past. You know, it'd be terrible to just hide the past, you know, and um, and just use the technology today. But um, I could see that happening, you know, unfortunately. You know, one of the things that's fascinating in the book is the, the way that some of this ancient, I think it's ancient technology that sort of, sort of bleeds off into what we think of as magic now still can can come up and bite us like the hexam boys you tell us the story of the hexam boys and what happened to them oh yeah well this is really weird <laughs> this is I, I mentioned this in the book because again it deals with um with 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 ancient stone and um this revolves around two young boys back in 1972 in the northern part of England. And um, they're in, in their backyard just playing, uh, digging. And um, they were, at the time, they were about seven or eight um, years old. And when they were digging, they found these strange um, carved stones, just small, about the size of like... Um, uh, like a like a baseball about that size and they look really kind of creepy the eyes looked odd and um, one of them had almost like a like a witch-like um nose <laughs> that kind of thing and um and they took these stones into the house and they realized that these stones were were very old and but they were sculpted extremely well and um and that that night when they took the stones into the house, um, the the next door neighbour um, woman um, saw this strange creature, almost like a the only way I could describe it, like a werewolf, manifested in the bedroom of the next door neighbour, and that and um, it's no sort of uh, surprise that they fled from the house, and um, and the more more people came in to see it, the more that people would have these bizarre experiences. And um, and there's um, a woman named um, Anne Ross, and she was she's dead now, but she um, she was a uh, one of the leading figures in Celtic history, and she took the, the stones um, to um, to her house, and she saw. Um, these werewolf-type creatures looming over her bedroom in the dead of night at sort of like two about 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And not surprisingly, she shot out of the front door as, as well. Now, she came up with a, a fascinating scenario which ties in um, with, with this book. That's why I mentioned it in. Um, she came to suspect that... There was a possibility where you could imprint um, almost like an, an image um, into something to make it look like something else. I'll explain what I mean by this. Imagine if you've got these stones, these carved stones with these creepy faces, um, and you could give it some kind of like a resonance. But what it would do, it would affect the human mind. 
so it be it was it's kind of like turning stone into a weapon and so she came to believe that she didn't really see a werewolf at all but what she did see was like an image um created by the 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 effects of the stones if you like and causing problems with the human mind and um so you know we've got another angle um, where you can use sound um, directed at people which can create um, images that really aren't re aren't really there and uh, and she wondered if those werewolf images could have been something along those lines sort of um, something that played with her mind not realizing that her, her mind was being um, messed around with but um, but again when you look at um, sound being able to cause um, heart attacks um, uh, cause depression uh, all sorts of things um, and we've got you know the issues of how supposedly ancient man in the UK um, used acoustics um, during their religious um, ceremonies um, to allow them to become even more if you like into the the ceremony tell us before we go i'm meaning to get to this about the dragon project oh yeah and the strange creature yeah yeah well yeah this is a really weird story as well um in central england there's a very ancient um, stone circle called the Rollwright Stones in central England. Um, I know everybody knows um, about Stonehenge, um, and a lot of people think, you know, that's the only one. But in the UK, there's actually more than 100 stone circles in the UK. Um, but mo most of them are just tiny ones. Some of them are only the size of, like, somebody's living room, and the stones are maybe three feet high but but there are a lot of them all around the u.s at uh, the uk and um the roll right uh roll right stones one night this one particular um program the the, the dragon uh, project was to try and understand um acoustics coming off from um stones and people who went in there and, and who still do do get sort of odd feelings and sometimes people have seen strange things and in 1977 one of the staff who was working out at the Rollwright Stones just just hanging around and suddenly and briefly he saw something like a, a hairy huge creature just lumbered by you know it clearly was yeah. not anything like um, like a dog or, or anything like that, um, and it was sort of more like um, almost like a like a Bigfoot type creature. Um, and again, there was some um, thought of the possibility that the stones were affecting because of the acoustics. They were affecting the person's mind, and uh, and what they saw was really sort of um an image um but you aren't but your mind isn't realizing that you're creating it 
Yeah, and it, it, you know, there's a a document called the Condine Report with an I. It's not the Condon Report. Mm-hmm. That where they say in it that people who come into close contact with UFOs can mm-hmm. or they they call them plasmas because this was before the you could say UFO in the in 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 the secret in the classified world you had to say other things anyway uh, they say that people who come into close contact with them may remember things that did not happen and that has been of course in my life it's one of the main issues that i have because you know am i telling stories that i think happened that didn't i don't know in any case uh so that can it can be that that's you know something like that type of sound can can do that. Let's talk a little bit about infrasound. No, we're we're very close to that at this point in terms of our conversation. Well, yeah. You tell us what it is, and let's go on and talk about it. It's it's present. Yeah, the present well, state of this idea. Like, yeah, yeah. We've got things like um, ultrasound and acoustics, um, but we've also got um, infrasound. Now that's in some respect is similar infrasound directed at a person can also create um feelings or images in the mind and something along the lines of just something that isn't really there but it is the but there is an image there and uh, it's almost like an like a directed um hallucinogenic if you like and not realizing that you are in a state of hallucinatory situation. Um, And so infrasound um, directed at people can make people hear voices in their their heads, uh, which isn't a very good thing, you know, you you don't want that. Um, But also um, infrasound can um, affect um, your taste, your ears, um, all sorts of different things, um, and um, sickness, vomiting, and also, again, bizarre um, things in, in your mind. Um, very often, we don't know why, but a lot of, the, the, a lot of the, the images, if you like, that people report is that after infrasound is something like a Bigfoot-type creature, um, or something along those lines. And that, again, may explain why we see so many of these strange creatures in and around places like stone circles, that possibly they're not really there, but the infrasound is creating uh, something in the person's mind because it's, it's focusing right on them. You know what has happened? I've got about 50 What's more that? questions. But we've come to the end of our time together. <laughs> so, okay, we have had a, I've had a wonderful time, as I always do with you, Nick. You are you're good. You're good radio for sure. And um, I'm sorry again, <laughs> folks, that we couldn't do video. But if you saw me, you wouldn't want to see me on video today. And Nick's system's acting up. So there we are. The mysterious technology of ancient superstructures, how anti-gravity built the pyramids 
a wonderful journey through some very, very, down some very, very strange paths. Nick Redfern, uh, 10th anniversary on, of, on Dreamland. I can't believe you've been on this show <laughs> that often, over 10 years. And thank you wow. for your support. Oh, thanks, Whitley. I'm always pleased to come on because, uh, like we did today, you know, we can cover so many different uh, angles. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm the one. I'm the one podcaster who reads the books. Not the only one, but one of the few. Uh, Nick <laughs> Nick Redfern Fortian dot com uh, dot blogspot dot com. Don't let me forget that. Nick, thank you so much for being with us today on Dreamland. It was wonderful. All right, thanks, Whitley. Thank you. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>